0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Thank you, Catherine. Well, if you are a guest with us this morning, you might be wondering if we have a calendar. You're thinking, we're like four weeks away from Advent, and we are singing and talking about the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that supposed to be for Easter? Um, the truth is, we do have a calendar, and we will kick off Advent in just four weeks. Excited about that. But we've, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about the resurrection of Christ and singing about the resurrection of Christ, because this year we have been working our way through uh, the book of First Corinthians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, seeking to learn uh, from uh, God's word in First Corinthians. And if you've been with us, here's one of the things that we've seen. Uh, the church in Corinth was quite a mess and it had a lot of issues. And so we've, uh, we've titled this sermon series Renovation because that's what Paul is doing through his word in 1 Corinthians is he's writing to teach and to correct and to bring gospel truth to bear on a people who have gone wayward, seeking to bring redemption and renewal and repentance uh, in the life of this first century church. And so we're reading it, hoping to glean and hear from God's word for our own life and our own witness as his people. And as we get to 1 Corinthians 15, we come to the final issue that Paul is addressing, or to keep with our metaphor, the final room that needs renovation in the Corinthian church. And this time, the issue that Paul is addressing is not a matter of behavior, right? That's what we've seen with a lot of these other issues. It's it's behavior that is unfitting uh, for a person who uh, believes and trusts in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This time, in chapter 15, The issue is with a core belief, a core Christian belief that the church in Corinth is starting to uh, let go of or drift away from. And we find that issue in verse 12. Look back with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It seems that there are some in the church in Corinth who are beginning to doubt or even deny the Christian truth that those who believe in Jesus will be raised in a bodily resurrection upon the return of Christ. They're starting to deny this. Now, just by the way, and I know that there are kids in the room this morning, so, you know. Is it important that we think rightly and biblically about the idea of heaven or the idea of our future upon Christ's coming. Uh, What Christians believe and have historically believed is that when Jesus returns, that those who are dead, who have died, will be raised upon the return of Christ in a physical bodily resurrection. It's an incredible thought that as Christ was raised, so we will be raised. In other words, our idea of heaven is not, the biblical idea of heaven is not like a disembodied soul that's floating around in the clouds, singing hymns and playing harps, you know, that image that we often get of heaven. That's not the Bible's idea of heaven. Let me tell you one other thing, by the way. The Bible's idea of heaven is not, uh, when Jesus returns, the idea is not that God's gonna destroy the earth and we're all just gonna float away. It's actually the picture in the Bible is that Jesus' return is going to restore. And renew and redeem the earth, right? Ephesians chapter 1. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1? That in him, in Christ, God is reconciling or reuniting, redeeming all things in heaven and on earth. The picture of Jesus' return is that heaven comes to earth. What does Jesus pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the Bible's picture of life after death is much more physical Than we often think. It's the spiritual coming and enveloping the physical. And so, this is what Paul is speaking, uh, writing to address. And from 1 Corinthians 15, we get a lot of, there's a lot of theology in this chapter, okay? And so, there's gonna be a lot of things that I'm not gonna talk about or address today. I'm gonna leave some meat on the bone for you to go dig into and talk about and learn about and discuss with your gospel communities. But from this chapter, and then also from Romans chapter 8. This is where we get so much of our doctrine of the doctrine of glorification, right? What does that mean, of, doctrine of glorification? Let, let me give you a, a definition as we get going. Um, Michael Bird, who's a New Testament scholar, defines it this way. He says, glorification represents the culmination of salvation. So the culmination of all of God's redemptive work, all of God's saving work in, uh, in the redemption of our bodies and the renewal of the earth. In other words, this is where all of human history is headed. This is what the Bible is teaching us glorification. So, if justification means being saved from sin's penalty, our, our sins are forgiven and we're saved. If sanctification means the ongoing uh, process, means being gradually freed from the power of sin in our lives day by day, then glorification means being freed from the presence of sin, both in our bodies and in our physical world. This is where the Bible is, this is what the Bible teaches. This is where everything is headed. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? Now, here's the question that we must ask of our text today. Why in the world were the Corinthians, or some among the Corinthians, denying this? Why were they doubting this, this idea of being raised with Christ, of resurrection, bodily resurrection? Well, If you've been with us as we've been working through this series, you know that the primary issue or really the root of all of the issues that the Corinthians were facing is that they were drifting back into their old ways of living and thinking before they encountered the good news of Christ. How many of you can identify with that, right? Being pulled and just drifting back to old patterns. And this is what was happening with the Corinthian Christians. More specifically, they were more concerned about fitting in with the elites in Corinth, then they were concerned with standing out for Christ. So what does that have to do with the concept of afterlife? Well, in, ancient, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, um, the Greek philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers, they actually talked quite a bit about life after death. And it was a very pessimistic view. That's why Paul says later in the passage, you know, if, 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 you're, gonna, if you're gonna try and deny the resurrection, you might as well just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And he's quoting, that's the way that they thought about uh, life, You know, YOLO. You know, what, what does it matter? You know, it, it, so, Paul, so what Paul is saying, uh, so they're, they're being tempted to drift back toward the culture's way of thinking. And one scholar says it this way. He says, in talking about uh, the ancient Greco-Roman world, the culture that the Corinthians lived in, he says, that the concept of a physical, embodied existence after death was thought laughable by the educated and the elite in Corinth. And so think about this. Here are these, these, this young church, these new Christians, they've had a real encounter with Jesus. They've come to believe in him and trust, trust him. But they have this really optimistic view of life after death, This, this incredibly optimistic view, this bodily view. And it's getting them made fun of by the elites and the educated. It's getting them persecuted even and so I think there are some that are among them that are just thinking, hey, can we just cool it, like with all this talk about resurrection? Can we just cool it on that so that we can better fit in with the culture? And when Paul gets word of this, that this is what, they are, what they're doing and what they're thinking, he decides he needs to speak into this. This is significant. Let's look at a few verses. Look back at verse 13. So Paul is speaking into this, the significance of the resurrection, We can't let go of the resurrection. We can't lose sight of the resurrection in the Christian life. He starts in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, so believers being raised, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, the apostles' preaching, is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's saying this stuff that we do here as the church if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, it's because, I guess you're saying Christ hasn't raised, and so all this stuff that we're doing, it's meaningless. We're just wasting our time. It's meaningless. He goes on, verse 15, we, the apostles, are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is key, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He goes on in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink for tomorrow we die. Here's what the point that Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians and to us. Paul will not let us turn the gospel into a self-improvement message. Are you with me? Like, like he won't let us turn the gospel into, like, Jesus is an accessory to help us live our best life now in this life. He, he He won't let us do that. Jesus, he's saying, did not suffer and die and raise again just to give you a boost in this life. In fact, as Paul goes on, he's, he, we're going to see that Paul actually has a pretty low view of life in this world. He has a pretty low view of it. In other words, he has a, a sober-minded, realistic view of what life in this world can really offer a human being. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And so if I have to summarize 1 Corinthians 15, I think this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, you cannot let go of your resurrection hope. You can't let go of the resurrection. You can't downplay it. You can't be ashamed of it because the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the entire Christian faith. Without it, there is no good news. There is no Christian life without the resurrection. But with it, with the resurrection, there is everything Paul is saying. This is is interesting. Paul is basically saying, look, is the the idea, the claim of Christ raised from the dead, is that an outrageous claim? Yes, he's saying. Yes, it is. He's saying, is the concept, the, the idea of human beings dead and bodily raised back to life, is that an outrageous idea? Paul's saying, yes, it is. But here's what else he's saying in 1 Corinthians 15. It's true. It's real. It's real because Jesus really rose. In fact, we read this earlier. Catherine read this for us. In verses 3 through 11, Paul makes this point. He says, don't forget the message, the news that we brought to you. Don't forget it. In other words, I don't know if you know this or not, if you're taking notes, this is, a, this is big. In the ancient world, they didn't have smartphones. Okay? Um, they didn't have smartphones. So how was something verified? How was news verified? It was announced and with eyewitnesses. It was verified through eyewitnesses. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, is it an outrageous claim? Yes. Is it true? Yes. He says, remember how we delivered to you this message? We came to you with this message? That Jesus, who, by the way, really lived? He was a real person in real time and real history. That This isn't a fairy tale, religious fairy tale stuff. Like, Jesus really lived? Remember how he lived? And, and he, he died in accordance with the scriptures that the prophets spoke about, the Messiah who would come, and Isaiah, he'd be a suffering servant, and, and he, he really died in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, remember this, and he was buried in a real tomb, Paul says. History won't deny that, by the way. Uh, Jesus' dead body was, was in real history buried in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was put in his tomb, buried, dead. He's saying, remember this? Remember how this really happened and we, we told you about this? And, and, and then he was raised to the dead in accord, from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, and there is no body. Even two millennia later, we, we don't, there is no body. The, the tomb is still empty, and not only that, but he appeared, Paul says. He's like, this has all really happened in real history. He appeared to over 500 witnesses. It's verifiable. It's trustworthy. Paul goes on and says, some of them are still alive. He wrote 1 Corinthians roughly 18 to 19 years after Jesus' resurrection, isn't this interesting? He's saying, go ask them. Go, if you can find them, go ask. Oh, And by the way, some of them have died. Why have they died? Did they just get old and frail? No, they've died because they've given their life to proclaiming this message about what they really saw, the resurrected Jesus. Thousands of people have received this message. Paul says in verse one and two of chapter 15, he says, and you were some of them. You received it, you heard it, and, and you believed it because it's, it's verifiable, and you took your stand on it, Paul says, and you're being saved by it. You've been transformed by it. And then he says, don't let go of this truth. Jesus is risen. And it has real implications for your life. You can't be ashamed of this. You can't not only let go of it, but Paul is going to go on to make the point, not only should we not ever let go of the resurrection, we can't. If we, if we let go of it, we have nothing. It's everything. But he's also going to make the point that we cannot lose sight of the resurrection as believers. In other words, let me give you this. If I had to sum up 1 Corinthians 15 in one sentence, here it is. This is for real this time. If you're taking notes, this is it. The resurrection of Jesus is everything to the gospel message. Without it, we have no message. And the implications of the resurrection are everything to the Christian life. The resurrection is everything to the gospel message and the implications of the resurrection are everything to the Christian life. What do I mean? I wanna ask you to track with me for a moment. Hang in there with me for a moment. How many of you are future-oriented people? How many of you would say that? Like I'm a forward-thinking, future-oriented person. Okay, here's the thing that you future-oriented people, like you're the kind of people that like, I have a five-year, 10-year plan for my life, you know? I have a five-year, 10-year plan for my business. I have a five-year, 10-year plan for my finances. And, and here's what you future-oriented people know. You know that our future hope, our future goals, our future desires give shape to our present living. Right? Are you with me? So, for example, like, if you hope to retire by 60, maybe that's your future hope, that's your future desire, then that future goal is going to give shape to, like, decades of how you live and how you spend and how you save. Your future hope gives shape to your present living, how you live in the present. And Paul knows this. This is what Paul is trying to get across. Our future hope as Christians shapes our present living. And if we lose sight of our future hope, bodily resurrection, eternal life, in glory, if we lose sight of our future hope, Something else will take its place. Are you with me? Like some lesser thing will become our hope in life and death. Some, some, some lesser thing. Like our future hope maybe will be another person. We'll put our hope in another person, a relationship. We'll, we'll, we'll put our hope in a job or, you know, in uh, uh, the next promotion. We'll, we'll put our hope in our kids. And we'll live for our kids, and they'll disappoint us. And so then we'll live for our grandkids, and then we'll die, you know, before they disappoint us. I mean, this is what we do, right? If the, our, we're putting our hope in something. And particularly, particularly for us in this room, this is our distinction from the original audience, the Corinthians. We are conditioned. We are primed by the American, 21st century American culture that we live in. We are Primed and conditioned to put our hope in the things of this world. We're predisposed to it. What do I mean? Well, you have grown up hearing things like, you can be anything you want to be, you can write your own future. Life is your oyster. You know, like just go out and make your own future. You've been conditioned by this. This is the air that we breathe. We are in control of our own destiny. This is the air that we breathe. But here's what starts to happen as we all set out on this journey to write our own future and determine our own happiness. Here's what starts to happen. We start to bump up against the fact that this world is deeply broken. Something starts to happen to us along the way, and and it happens to some of us sooner, earlier than it happens to others, but it happens to all of us nonetheless. What is it? we begin to realize that the future that we're trying to create for ourselves can't really be found on this earth. Why? Because this is a world of sin and death. The future that we hope for, that we're living for, that we're uh, striving toward, it gets interrupted. How? Well, in a variety of different ways. Perhaps it's the people that we love that we're living for and they get sick and die. Perhaps it's the people that we love and that we're living for betray us, abuse us, abandon us. How about this? That fairy tale wedding that you've always dreamed of since you were a little girl doesn't feel like a fairy tale marriage a few years later. That job that you've worked and studied and labored for finally got in a matter of time is unfulfilling and unsatisfying. As we age, these bodies they start to slow down. We gain weight. Can I get a witness? We get sick. We suffer. We start to learn how fragile we really are. You know, all it takes is one disaster, a tragedy, a job loss, stock market crash, God forbid, a diagnosis in our children, in our spouse, and our life is upended. Our future is shattered. A divorce It doesn't take long for us to learn how prevalent evil is in this world. I mean, even this week, if you looked at the headlines, like shooters and wars, this is the world that we live in. This is what Paul understood, and he's trying to teach us. We live in a world of sin and death. If you you look to this life, this world, for your future hope, man. Man. But, Paul says, for the Christian the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything about how we live in the here and now. This is why he says what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. He says this to a people like you and me who are bent and prone to going back to putting our hope in this life, putting our hope in the things of this world, putting our hope in what we can do in these bodies. And Paul says this in verse 20. Look at it with me. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits... Underline that. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the Bible's way of saying who have died. Those in Christ who have died. 21, for as by a man came death. He's talking about Adam. Through Adam, sin and death came into this world. The fall came into this world. All the stuff that we just talked about, the conditions of life in this world, is through Adam. We all inherited it, and we all contributed to it. He says, by a man has come also The resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all will die, also in Christ shall all, all those who put their faith in Jesus, be made alive. What Paul is saying is that Jesus' resurrection, his defeat of death, he calls the first fruits. What does that mean? It simply means that what God has done for Jesus, the power of God raising Jesus from the dead, is the first of many more that will come. I want you to hear me clearly. If you are a Christian, meaning you are in Christ, not by any work of your own, you, you don't earn your position in Christ, you've received it by grace through faith. If that's you this morning, you will be raised into glory, in power, unto life eternal, That is incredible. That should blow your mind. That should stir your soul. That should shape your life in every way right now in the present. In fact, Paul is going to go on in verse 35 through 49 to explain this more. And I think what he's trying to do is I think he's trying to stir our imagination. Let me make up a word here. I think he's trying to resurrectionize our thinking about this life. He's trying to stir up our imagination so that we stop putting our hope in worldly things and set our eyes and our hope on our future. Listen, your future in Christ is more real than anything in your present right now. It's more true. It's more real than anything in your present. It's incredible. In verse 37 through 38, I won't read it for us, but here's essentially what Paul's saying in verse 37 through 38. He says that, he says, death in this life, so in these bodies, whether your own death, which, by the way, breaking news, you will die, in your own, your own bodies, or someone that you love. You could think of someone that you love that has died. That death is nothing more for the Christian. That He says it like a kernel going into the ground. He says, wheat or grain. I think for us, maybe you could think about an acorn, right? Nothing more than an acorn going into the ground. And in God's time, when his time comes... He will raise you up in new form, that acorn into an oak tree. It's like the same substance, right? It's, the same, it's, your, it's your body still, but it gets raised up in glorious form. It's an incredible thought. He says in verse 42 and 43, you read the, I'll read this for us. He says, what is sown is perishable, talking about our bodies going into the ground. When we're, what is sown is perishable, it dies, it decays. But what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown in a natural body is raised in a spiritual body. I can't help but, but think that as Paul is writing this, he has in his mind the resurrected Lord Jesus. You do know that Paul encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus, don't you? Like like in real life. He was on the road to Damascus persecuting Christians. And he encountered the resurrected Lord in glory. And I can't help but think he has this in his mind, you know? Like, like, what God did for Jesus, these are the first fruits he will do for us. And he's envisioning it before he was blinded, you know, like maybe he saw a little bit of what that was like. But the New Testament tells us in other places what the resurrected body of Jesus was like. And it's pretty incredible. It's pretty stunning, like, right? Like, there's a couple things that we know. We know that, number one, he was hungry and he wanted to eat fish. Interesting, right? Like, you're going to get to enjoy food. And the new creation. Yeah, amen. For, you know, I love that. I love food. <laughs> and you'll have redeemed taste buds. Like not fallen taste buds. Can you imagine that? That's going to be awesome. So he, he's hungry and he wants to eat. But yet he also, in glory and in power, walks through locked doors. Wow. Wow. Um, let's see. Uh, he has wounds and scars. Real body but yet he has this peculiar glory about him that is unrecognizable until they hear his voice. Mm. As he is raised, you will be raised. Spiritual body. Wow, incredible. Listen, this is your future in Christ. This is your future. And listen, there's so much more that could be said about this text. Rick's gonna pick up next week and do a little bit more with the end of chapter 15, but There's so much more that we could say, but listen, if you hear nothing else this morning, would you hear this? Not only is Jesus a suffering savior for sinners, but he is a coming king. He will come again. As surely as he lived, as surely as he really died, as surely as he was buried, he will come again. And when he does, he will rid the world of all evil, of all sin, of all evildoers, He will wipe every tear from every eye, and he will raise the dead in Christ into glorious life for all eternity. This is your future. What a day that will be. Listen, brothers and sisters, church family, resurrection is your future. I want to close with a couple of quotes that I love. This first is from Michael Goheen. Listen to what Michael Goheen says. He says, the whole Bible leads us to expect a glorious renewal of life on earth, an endlessly thrilling adventure of living with God on the new earth, with his presence pervading every act. We shall be more fully human than we ever have been, liberated from sin, death, and all the hurts or harms. Sounds a lot like Eden, doesn't it? Beautiful. Ray Ortland says this in his little book titled The Gospel. I love this. He says, on that final day, as we step together into the new creation, you may turn to me and you may say, hey, Ray, I'm I'm trying to remember, did did we call it cancer? What, What was it again? But we won't be able to remember. And so we'll say, oh, well, off we go into glory. What a day. This is your future. I want to encourage you, don't lose sight of this. Don't settle for lesser hopes. Let this future shape your present in every way. Let it comfort you today if you are suffering, struggling, despairing. Let this comfort you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that these present sufferings are but light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that is in our future Let this comfort you today if you are suffering. Let this urge you on today, brothers and sisters, toward more faithful obedience to Christ in every way. Let it loosen your grip on the things of this world. This is your future. The resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise. We bless you for your great grace and mercy and kindness towards sinners like us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that the message of the gospel has come to us. Thank you that it's available to anyone who is here today to take hold of it, to tighten our grip on you, to let go of the things of this world. Father, would you help us to... Not lose sight of our glorious future in Christ. Would you forgive us at times and in ways that we have settled for lesser hopes and we've lived for things of this world that are perishable, that rest, that won't satisfy? I pray that you would comfort those in the room this morning as we enter into a time of response. You would comfort those who are suffering today, that they would get a little bit of a taste that their imagination would be resurrectionized. They would be lifted up and encouraged that you are risen and reigning and that you are coming again and that you will wipe every tear from every eye. I pray that for those in the room that are settled in and hunkered down into the comforts of the world, that you would wake us up. You would stir our hearts to leverage our lives for your kingdom and your glory in every way. Lord, would you meet us in this time of response? As we come to your table, would you feed us with your presence? As we sing, would you be honored and blessed and would you stir our affections for you as we pray? Would you minister to us and lift us up? We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.